it's never too early or too late to question your thesis and be humble about what the market is telling you. The only reason I'm in the seat that I am is because I left myself open to experiences, things that I was uncomfortable with. I think the best leadership comes from just doing what you're expecting of others yourself. We're not in a job where being right is the most important thing. Welcome to Successful Investors. I'm Andrea Gentilini, CEO of Novus, and your host. In this episode, I'm speaking with Su Tuentan, the president of the Disarin Group, an investment manager based in Connecticut. Unlike many others, Su Tuen did not buy his first stock when he was 12 years old. Born in Malaysia as a son of two physics teachers, Su Tuen became passionate about investing when he joined a stock pickers club during business school. Today, investors seem to keep buying growth in the US tech sector, no matter the fundamentals. Instead, Su Tuen and his team practice the increasingly rare art of contrarian, value-based investing on a global scale. And as you can expect, fundamental analysis and margins of safety are all arrows in their quiver. But what makes Su Tuen and his team successful investors is something else. It's about considering the values around value, the cultural norms a business operates into, the principles that a management team lives by, or the values of the entire environment around them, whether it's driven by the country, the region, or all of the above. Values guide behavior, and behavior correlates to outcomes. Understanding values gives Su Chuan and his team an edge. Specifically, Su Chuan invites us to pay attention to the difference between thick and thin cultures. Curious about what that means? We were too. Listen further to find out. Before we begin, here's a quick word from our team at Novus. This is Basim Alshura, Head of Sales at Novus, the platform allocators and managers use to enrich their data, extract insights, and engage stakeholders. Regulators are increasing requirements for environmental, social, and governance-related reporting globally, with more and more managers integrating ESG factors into their investment frameworks, being able to effectively report the impact of your sustainability decisions is more important now than ever before. With Novus's ESG analytics and dashboards, managers can answer questions like, what are my exposures and P&L to each ESG rating bucket? And more importantly, are my sustainability decisions generating alpha? And for asset owners, access ESG reporting for your entire portfolio. Did a manager really reduce their carbon footprint as they claim? Are your managers improving or impairing your aggregate ESG scores? Are your investments helping you mitigate portfolio risk? Interested in learning more? Reach out at Novus.com. And now, Su Chuen. Su Chuen, welcome to Novus Successful Investors. It's a pleasure having you with us. Thank you, Andrea. I guess we start with the usual question. When did you start in finance? I grew up in a small town in Malaysia called Malacca. My parents were both high school physics teachers. So as you can imagine, I did not buy my first stock when I was 12. I caught the investing bug while I was at business school when I joined a small stock pickers group that included several of my classmates who had worked for hedge funds or mutual funds. Several of my professors also took an interest in me and generously introduced me to some of the best investors they knew. That's how I decided I wanted to learn to become a good investor. 
Got it. And who were your first mentors in your career? And more specifically, what did you learn from them? Well, I've been blessed to have had many mentors without whom I wouldn't be where I am today. I'll talk about just one of them who had a big impact on me before I became a professional investor. In 2000, when I was working with McKinsey and Company, I had the privilege of working with Pramas Sinha, who was then a partner at the firm, helping him set up the Indian School of Business in Hyderabad. Pramath was an incredible servant leader. When you worked with Pramath, you just knew that no matter how demanding he was of you, he was ultimately in your corner. He treated people as ends, not as means, a content precept with tremendous quiet power. He also had an uncommonly candid and courageous vulnerability. So you are quoting Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, reminds me of some of the dark <laughs> days of high school. Would you mind elaborating a little bit on his precept and share how it's related to your mentor? Definitely. So Immanuel Kant's second formulation of his famous categorical imperative states that we should act in such a way that we treat humanity, whether in our own person or in the person of any other, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end. In plain English, the idea is that people matter because they matter, not just because they're useful to us. I think Pramath embodies that idea. I will never forget a conversation I had with Pramath in 2007. And this is seven years after we've last worked together. When I told him that my mother had just been diagnosed with advanced cancer, I was figuring out how to manage her care, given that I was in the States and she was in Malaysia, and she had no US health insurance coverage. I was 30 at the time. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, Suchuan, you should do whatever it takes to get your mom the best care and spend time with her. I promise you that you won't regret this after she's gone. His willingness to speak difficult truths and ask that I step up, which so many people are afraid to do for fear of offending, helped me gain the courage to take responsibility for her care. So needless to say, Pramas teams run through walls for him. He's a hard act to follow, but his model of leadership left an indelible impression on me. This is really inspiring, I must say. I wish I had met this person as well. Going back to investments, how do you approach the whole theme of investing? So before I discuss investing in investments, I want to state that our compliance policies restrict me from discussing performance in a forum like this. And our compliance team has asked me to point out that nothing I say is an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security and any such offers will only be made by private placement memorandum. So Disrain invests globally, pursuing a fundamental, contrarian, long-term value investing philosophy. We invest in businesses protected by either structural barriers to entry or hard assets when they're out of favor at prices offering significant margins of safety. I will use we, the royal we, to refer to the Disrain team during this conversation because my team is absolutely integral to how I invest. We generally invest with a view of becoming a long-term owner of businesses instead of a trader of securities. The firm employs private equity-like structures to make truly long-term investments in public companies. So there are companies in our portfolios today that we bought over a decade ago that we haven't sold a single share of. To invest the way we do, it is important to develop a tight-knit base of partners who share our philosophy, values, and investment horizons. We do not consider our partners to be interchangeable or capital to be fungible. The who behind that capital and the relationships we build with them are core to our DNA. Excellent. So there's so many things that are interesting. The last statement, by the way, reminds me of Kant again. The who is important. So treat Absolutely. people 
as ends and not as means. So you mentioned that you pursue a contrarian, fundamental, long-term value investing approach. Can you unpack it a bit for us? Certainly. So our investment philosophy is founded on several tenets. The first tenet is being contrarian, or in the words of Warren Buffett, to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. So this maxim is easy to articulate, but harder to put in practice, especially among professional investors, because believe me, we can justify almost any emotional reaction in analytical terms. For example, during the dislocation, like in March 2020, an investor can justify not buying stocks by arguing that the equity risk premium has increased. To make investment decisions based on such market measures is to have the tail wag the dog. Psychologically, our reaction in these times is to do the opposite. So we believe that the best times to invest are when everyone is operating in a fog of uncertainty. When we're looking for babies being thrown out with the bathwater, that is structurally attractive businesses that we can own long-term that become available at compelling valuations. So I remember attending an investment conference back in 2012 when the European sovereign debt crisis was in full swing. The firm was two years old and we were managing a really modest amount of money. We were literally surrounded by CEOs and senior executives of so many companies at the conference. We thought, wow, this is a great conference. The access we're getting is unbelievable. For one fleeting moment, I thought, maybe it's because we're asking such thoughtful questions. Everyone wants to talk to us. And then we realized that we were almost the only investors there. That's why everyone was talking to us. And then we thought, well, we're in exactly the right place. Now, on the flip side, our investment discipline prevents us from chasing performance in irrationally exuberant markets. We believe that when valuations are unattractive, the right thing to do is to do nothing. This too is often hard to do, especially in a market environment where continuous money printing means that, to use a Texas Hold'em analogy, the blinds continue to be raised for all investors, forcing investors to bet more. Now, moving on to our second tenet of investment, which is to view risk as the probability and potential magnitude of permanent capital impairment, not volatility. It's counterintuitive to us why risk has come to be so widely measured using market price movements. Since investors with long-duration capital infrequently take money off the table, the end point is the most important in any geometric return series of an investment program. Many strategies that involve the implicit selling of cat put options will, prior to the cat event, look to have incredibly attractive returns per unit volatility characteristics. More generally, we think that analytical tools that use linear approximations over defined time periods often do not capture and calibrate real-world economic scenarios occurring in continuous time, since these are replete with conditional and compound probabilities. So that's an interesting mathematical statement right there, which is often a little bit of a compromise that mathematics has to do with the real world, which is at the end of the day, we need to have functions, we need to have time series, we need to calculate things on those. Can you elaborate a little bit on your last statement about the compound probabilities and the discrepancy that there is between how the real world works and the mathematical approximations that we use? I'll give you an example. So if you looked at price charts of certain MLPs prior to late 2015 and 2016, you would think that they were as safe and steady as it gets. Dividends per share went up like clockwork every year. And because they traded on dividend yield, their stock prices went up accordingly. So they behaved more like bonds than common stock. 
Indeed, certain MLPs probably boasted among the best backward-looking return-per-unit volatility measures just before they imploded in 2015 and 2016. So as a result, some investors literally sold out-of-the-money put options on such MLPs because they were ostensibly so safe. If these MLPs traded down, the logic goes, they'd buy more of them anyway. Ex-ante, this cat insurance selling is unlikely to be well-captured by market price-based measures, such as the shop ratio. Of course, this all changed in late 2015, when a fall in oil and natural gas prices highlighted the vulnerabilities of certain MLPs. In some cases, there was a viciously self-reinforcing negative feedback loop. So when the stock prices of certain MLPs fell, they were no longer able to raise more capital in debt and equity markets. And so they had to cut the dividends, which in turn caused further stock price declines. Now, the risk within these particular MLPs were always there. They just had not been reflected in their stock prices a priori. Now, moving on, the third tenet of our investment program is distinguishing price from value. Price is what you pay, and intrinsic value is what you get. Underlying the value investors approach is a simple fact. The quoted price only matters when one is buying or selling an asset. The beauty of what we do is that we decide whether and when we're a buyer or seller. Financial markets have to offer us a genuine bargain before we would buy any asset and an attractive exit price for us to sell it. For the rest of the time, we can sit on our hands and wait. To further stack the decks in our favor, we do not need to have a view on most of the assets that are traded daily. Of course, knowledge is slippery and humbling. So the more we learn about businesses we study, the less we realize we know about them. Even so, we have to hold fast the belief that each business we study has an intrinsic value that we must do our best to estimate without falling into a reductionist, Berkeleyan conception of intrinsic value being what other market participants would pay for it. Okay, so I hear now George Berkeley after Immanuel Kant. <laughs> Could you elaborate a little bit on his principles and also explain their relevance to our discussion right now? Gladly. George Berkeley was an 18th century Irish philosopher who advanced the theory of subjective idealism, which argues that things in the world are ideas perceived by the mind and as a result, cannot exist without being perceived. So for example, if a tree in a forest falls to the ground and no one heard it, did it really make a sound? Indeed, if no one was around to see or touch the tree, how could the tree be said to exist at all? So applying this to investing, a Berkeleyan concept of value, of asset X, just take any asset, asset X, is necessarily linked to the price that someone else is willing to pay for that asset. The belief goes, if no one is willing to pay a price for asset X, then there really is no basis for saying that asset X is worth anything at all. On the flip side, if folks are willing to pay a certain price for a particular asset, so for example, Bitcoin or Picasso painting, then that asset must be worth that price. So reality is processed through perception. Understood. So that's what causes or may cause the distortions that you're looking for between price and value. Sure. So based on this subjectivist approach to investing, price and value are the same thing. If people pay a price, if people price a particular company based on a multiple of earnings, then that company is worth such multiple of earnings. If people price a different company based on a multiple of sales, then that company is worth such multiple of sales. 
if people price yet another company based off a multiple of eyeballs or subscribers, then that company is indeed worth such multiple of eyeballs or subscribers. So Berkeleyan investing is an exercise in persuasion. You make money when you persuade other people to agree with your perception of value. Because people tend to be swayed by narratives or stories, the most successful investors using this approach are also the most persuasive storytellers. Now, value investors have a fundamentally different approach. We believe that an asset has intrinsic worth, regardless of the price that others are willing to pay for it. That worth does not fluctuate moment to moment based on how others perceive the asset at any given time. Instead, the intrinsic worth or intrinsic value of the asset is simply the net present value of all the cash flows the asset would generate over the course of its economic life. Our job as value investors is to try to figure out the intrinsic value the best we can with imperfect information, imperfect tools, imperfect skills. We are all in Plato's cave, as it were. I am tempted to ask you a question about Plato's cave, but since we're already in the bracket of Berkeley, why don't we keep going, Suchan, and leave sure. that for another day? We'll leave that for a different conversation. So the fact that we estimate intrinsic value imperfectly and we can change our minds about it does not mean that an objective intrinsic value doesn't exist. With the passage of time, we'll all find out exactly how much cash flow a particular asset generates over its economic life. So there is objective truth, even if no one investor has a monopoly of it. Consequently, figuring out intrinsic value becomes a weighing exercise, not a voting exercise. The extent to which we're right does not depend on how many others agree with us. We'll make money if the asset we're invested in actually generates the cash flows that we expected to generate, and we're able to purchase it at a sufficiently compelling price. So this leads us to the fourth principle of value investing, which is requiring a margin of safety for every investment. So value investing is an investment approach that's logically coherent, but epistemically difficult. If we knew with 100% certainty that company's A stock was worth 100, then of course we would buy at 60 and buy even more if we trace down to 30. However, there are fundamental limits to our knowledge because, among other things, uncertainty about the future, limits to publicly available information, causal ambiguity, especially in complex and dynamic systems, and most importantly, limits to our own analytical ability and competence. Because we can never be 100% sure of our intrinsic value estimate, we need a margin of safety to protect ourselves against the risk of permanent capital impairment. This is especially true because of our long investment horizons. If we expect to own a business indefinitely, we must factor in the high probability that the business will experience challenges while we own it. So you mentioned earlier on that one of the key principles and also success factors of the way you manage money is that you are there when others are in panic and there is a fog of uncertainty. And I suspect that part of that is also due to the way you invest, your private equity structure, you called it. Can you explain what that is and what problem it solves? So in broad terms, our investors make capital commitments to us instead of funding the entire investments up front. We then call this capital down over time as we find compelling investments. This structure is, of course, typical for private equity firms, but it is far less common in public markets vehicles. So what the structure does is to create a time gap between when the capital commitment is made and when we actually deploy the capital. 
This is especially helpful for an investment program like ours, which thrives on being greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. So the most compelling investment opportunities often present themselves during times of dislocation, like March and April 2020, when investors are the most worried, liquidity is the most scarce, our own portfolios are the most beaten down, and frankly, when we're looking the most foolish. This isn't typically a good time to go head in hand to investors to ask for more capital. But because of our structure, we had a lot of already committed dry powder going into the March-April market dislocation, and we deployed a significant amount of it during the sell-off. Now, it is worth mentioning that having the right partners made all the difference. When we made our capital calls, every one of our partners funded them. Given the fog of uncertainty everyone was operating in, and given the liquidity crunch that many experienced during this period, this response required good liquidity planning, strong investment discipline, tremendous trust, and a high degree of partnership-mindedness from our investors. We are incredibly fortunate to have the partners we do. So that's interesting. And how does the industry instead behave? So you flip this around. So our observation is that investment firms tend to get the most capital inflows after periods of outsized performance, when generating prospective returns may be the most challenging. During such times, our structure allows us to sit on capital commitments without drawing them down. This enables us to try to maximize the dollar-weighted returns, not just the time-weighted returns of the capital we manage. So using a spring-calling analogy, our structure allows us to deploy more capital when we're coiling the spring of prospective returns and to not force ourselves to invest right after the springs just uncoil. A lot of what you do, Suchen, reminds me of being extremely cold-blooded and rational when there's fear and panic out there. And you mentioned the idea of irrational market exuberance. Now, what are the telltale signs of such irrational markets? Well, there's so much great research on this. There are several telltale signs. The first is new era economic thinking. Irrational exuberance is often accompanied by a raft of sensational projections of dramatic changes in societal behavior, powered by a utopian belief that we're entering into a radically brighter future. In his book, Frenzy, Karl Hacke, and I apologize if I'm butchering his name, recounted the railway mania in England in the 1840s, when railways were thought to represent, and I quote, the most significant revolutionary advance ever in the history of the world, with one journal stating, I quote, we may be justified in looking for the arrival of a time when the whole world would have become one great family, speaking one language, governed in unity by like laws, and adoring one God. Hucker described, I quote, the talk that human life would now operate on railway time and at railway speed. The public spoke in law of the railway revolution. The new technology would change time itself. In his book, Irrational Exuberance, Robert Schiller gave a few examples of new era economic thinking in the U.S. during various times of particular economic optimism. So, for example, on January 1st, 1901, the Boston Post published a piece predicting that trains will run at 150 miles per hour and phonographs will sell goods in stores while automatic hands give change. Schiller added, and I quote, Marconi made the first transatlantic radio transmission in 1901, and there were predictions that we would soon be in radio communications with the planet Mars. 
So rolling forward to 1929, Charles Amos Dice published his book, New Levels in the Stock Market, in which he discussed a new world of industry, a new world of distribution, and a new world of finance. Roll forward again, this time to 1997. Stephen Weber wrote in his article, The End of the Business Cycle, in which he argued that changes in technology, ideology, employment, and finance, along with the globalization of production and consumption, have reduced the volatility of economic activity. The waves of the business cycle may be becoming more like ripples. The second telltale sign relates to investor psychology. Fear of missing out or FOMO becomes a powerful force. In Frenzy, Hucker described the 1960s, and I quote, the market was split between the go-go and Squaresville. The 25 best performing mutual funds were aggressive funds and gained 36 to 80% annually by 1966. That compared to conservative funds that made just 6%. In his book, Psychology in the Market, David Dreamer described the effect this had on investors. And I quote, those who did not go along were pushed aside. A young gunslinger at the height of the go-go euphoria of 1967 to 1968 was interviewed on TV about his aggressive investment strategies. When the name of Benjamin Graham, whose measured approach emphasizing full evaluation of risks and conservative pricing formulas came up, the money manager said, the trouble with old Ben is that he just doesn't understand the market, end quote. Skipping forward to the late 1990s, Hucker vividly described the zeitgeist of the time. Hucker recounts the then COO of Swiss American Securities saying, I quote, Warren Buffett was discounted. If you look at his investments during this time, he lost considerable amounts of money. So Warren Buffett can say whatever he wants to say, but sour grapes, right? Warren, he's an old guy. He's not getting it. Look at the value of his portfolio. It's down X. It should be up. End quote. Then Hucker also recounts a venture capitalist saying, I quote, It went on for so long. Even if you said to yourself, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be rational. Another year goes by and I'm wrong again. There were so many reinforcing conditions for it that sometimes if you try to keep a really disciplined approach and you're missing out on all these, you kind of wonder if you're being prudent or if you're being foolish. Eventually, you have to look in the mirror and ask, does everything I know and all the logic that's keeping me out of investing, is everything I know wrong? End quote. I was at McKinsey & Company's New York office at the time. It seemed like every day... I was getting goodbye emails in my inbox from colleagues along the line of, this is my last day at the firm. It has been an amazing journey. I've learned so much about business after spending X months at the firm. And I am now leaving to start or join this amazing dot-com venture that just got funded at this amazing valuation. The third telltale sign is when FOMO is reinforced by gambler's excitement. For example, describing the 1840s railway mania, William Wordsworth recounted, and I quote, The country is an asylum of railway lunatics. The Inverness patients, not content with a railway to their hospital from Aberdeen, insist on having one by the Highland Road from Perth. They admit that there are no towns or villages, no populations, and no chance of many passengers. End quote. By October 1844, 
the railway king George Hudson could raise two and a half million pounds from shareholders on spec, declaring, "I've got my money, and I have not told a single soul what I'm going to do with it." Schiller describes the self-reinforcing room. Even if there is no manipulator fabricating false stories, tales about the market are everywhere. When prices go up a number of times, investors are rewarded sequentially, just as they are in Ponzi schemes. There are still many people who benefit from telling stories that suggest that markets will go up further. There is no reason for these stories to be fraudulent. They need only emphasize the positive news and give less emphasis on the negative. Gambler's excitement sometimes spills over beyond stock markets. For example, Schiller observed that in 1987, while the price-to-earnings ratio of the Taiwanese stock market rose from 16 times to 45 times during the year, an illegal numbers game called Happiness for All that was unknown until 1986 suddenly became a national obsession. It was so popular that I quote. On the days when winning numbers are announced, peasants neglected their fields, and workers failed to report to their factories. Reading history is so humbling because it always reminds you that although you think that you're living in special times, most of it has been played in one way or the other before. How can we apply the lessons learned from history to what's happening around us? For example, take the Robin Hood trader. Today is a special day, by the way, because. I think Robin Hood settled an S sixty-five million dollars lawsuit, or I don't know how what's the technical term with the SEC, and also the fact that everything around us is a financial asset today. You got bitcoins, art. I can see, for example, funds of arts that are trying to digitize the art objects as investment vehicles and wine cellars. So help us out, Suchan. How do we look at all this? We certainly live in interesting times. History doesn't always repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme, and truth that stings to the ear is still true. I think we can let the listener decide how much of what we have observed in past bubbles rhymes with the behaviors we are noticing today. Sounds good. So let's go back to rationality and your very well thought out approach to investments. So, how do you determine then the best entry price for an investment? So we build long-duration discounted cash flow models for companies we study, because the future is uncertain. We have to model multiple scenarios, from dire downside cases to quite optimistic upside cases. We then compare the range of these intrinsic value estimates to the stock price of the company. If the quoted price offers us a compelling margin of safety and sufficiently asymmetric risk reward, we make the investment. Otherwise, we wait. So let's talk about the margin of safety. This is at the time when you do the analysis, the price that you expect, if you like, things to go down at most. Have the companies you looked at breached right through that level? And if that happened, what were the causes? Of course, investing is a humbling craft. When you've been an investor long enough, the passage of time inevitably teaches you that you often know a lot less than you think you do. It turns out that it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. All you can do is stack the odds in your favor. Our wall of shame is populated by companies where things worked out worse than we thought they would in downside cases. There have been various causes. Sometimes we were just wrong about the business. Sometimes the issue was capital allocation decisions made by management teams. Sometimes it was corporate governance issues, and sometimes it was just plain bad luck. 
When you look back at your career and the bets you've made, what stands out as your most successful investment? And more importantly, what did you learn from it? Given the length of time we hold our investments, I think the jury is still out on which of our investments will ultimately prove to be the most successful. It's like calling the Tour de France after four or five stages. However, one of our more successful investments is a Korean education company called Megastudy, now Megastudy Edu. I actually discussed the business in some depth in an interview with Parviz Parvizi as part of his Investing in Depth podcast series, so I won't repeat myself here. So instead, I will discuss another company called Sarana Manara Nusantara, or more commonly known as Protalindo, which is a leading independent cell tower company in Indonesia. So when we were buying Protalindo stock in the summer of 2018, the company traded at 11 times earnings and 7 times enterprise value to EBITDA. Because operating costs were so low once towers were built, Protalindo enjoyed through-cycle operating margins of above 60%. Net debt was modest at just two times EBITDA. This was a business that could take on a decent amount of leverage because customers were locked into multi-year contracts. For example, the US tower companies have net debt of up to seven times EBITDA and often command mark-to-market valuations north of 25 times enterprise value EBITDA. Significantly, the Indonesian tower industry had a longer growth window. Indonesian monthly mobile data consumption per connection was just one-third those of even its neighbors in Malaysia and Thailand. As a result, Protolindo had grown its tower base by 18% annualized over the last decade. The company also had a white moat. The tower business tends to be a natural monopoly. Once you build a tower in a local area, it does not make sense to build a tower right next to it as you can have multiple tenants on the same tower. Switching tower coverage, even for single towers, can be operationally disruptive. Switching costs are even higher because telecom operators often cannot just switch one tower in isolation, but have to switch entire networks of towers. As a result, Protolindo's returns on invested capital were high. Because Protolindo generated so much cash, it was able to fund the majority of its growth internally. So believe it or not, despite all its capital reinvestment needs, the company had also returned about half of its net income to shareholders in dividends since 2017. So we were able to buy a dominant white mode business with little debt at under 11 times earnings and a 5% dividend yield growing towers at double digits at high marginal returns on invested capital. So this looks like a jewel, but if we understood your process, you don't buy jewels at premium prices, you buy jewels at the price that would allow you to get a profit out of it. So how did you manage to buy the stock so cheaply, given the quality of what we're talking about? There were several reasons. So first, Protolinder was countercultural in the way it managed its balance sheet. By refusing to take on a lot of debt to finance even higher growth rates, it suffered in comparison to peers who were more aggressively following the lead of LBO companies in running their businesses with larger debt loads. And through the looking glass of modern monetary policy, apparently investors seem to view debt as an asset and cash as a liability. Second, growth was slowing at Protolindo. Due to the law of large numbers, its base of towers was getting larger in proportion to new tower additions, and that's natural. At the same time, all contracts that were overly generous to Protolindo were rolling off. In a growth-obsessed investing environment, 
these were perceived negatively by investors. Third, Pratolinda was based in Indonesia. Its stock traded down in the summer of 2018 when emerging markets sold off more broadly. Fourth, Pratolinda stock was not particularly liquid. So when multiple investors tried to dump its stock, they found that there were insufficient buyers on the other side. So for example, in August 2018, as we were accumulating Pratolinda stock in the market, a seller inquired if we were willing to buy the stock, a large block of the stock. We said, sure, at a discount. So the seller offered us a 3% discount to Protonindo's then market price. We said, no, we needed a 15% discount. The seller counted with 5. We said, no, 15. The seller counted with 10. We said, no, 15. And the seller agreed. I see. So Suchuan, I will never try to sell your car. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't. So a similar phenomenon happened in March 2020 when the Jakarta Stock Exchange halted trading and closed early as stocks were literally limiting down because not enough buyers were willing to step into the panic selling. Now, we think this phenomenon will only get more pronounced over time as money flows out of active stock picking into passive strategies. And as the remaining active stock pickers give up on value investing, especially in smaller companies in emerging markets. For example, after we had bought our block of Protolindo stock, we flew out to Jakarta to meet with the company's management team in November 2018. I think they were actually surprised that we were asking such tough, detailed questions about how their business will hold up in stress scenarios. They might have wondered if we were actually short sellers, masquerading as shareholders. I suspect that they did not often meet downside-focused, bottom-up value investors who are willing to own their stock through even the bleakest of potential macroeconomic environments. So Sutran, we spoke about the star. Let's talk about the dog. What was your most unsuccessful investment? And again, what did you learn from it? Well, we tend to learn more from our mistakes than our successes. And as with our successes, the full measure of our investment failures will be taken at the end of our investment careers. In the meantime, one of our least successful fully exited investments so far was in Elactor, which is a Greek conglomerate we invested in during the Greek sovereign crisis. The heart of our thesis was that Elactor's consolidated financials, which showed little profitability and significant debt, understated the true economics of the group. Elactor was a holding company that owned various assets, including toll roads, waste management concessions, power plants, a construction business, etc. Most of these assets were financed at the project level, with debt that was non-recourse to the holding company. But all of that debt was consolidated on Elacto's balance sheet because the company controlled each business. Some of these assets also had significant non-cash accounting amortization, such that reported earnings were significantly less than free cash flow. When we peeled the onion, we found several hidden assets. In particular, Elacto owned an approximately 25% stake in a low-cost, non-producing gold mine, the majority of which was held through European Goldfields, a publicly traded Canadian corporation. Because the mine was not yet operational, European Goldfields contributed nothing to earnings. But we believe that its low-cost gold reserves could be monetized. Apparently, the management team at Eldorado, a publicly traded mining company, agreed. In early 2012, Eldorado acquired European Goldfields using its stock 
at an implied valuation of over 400 million euros for Elacto's combined stake in the asset. Elacto also owned a controlling stake in Atiki Odos, the largest toll road in Athens, which generated free cash flow of more than 50 million euros a year for the group. But less than half of this in reported earnings, primarily due to non-cash amortization. Atiki Odos had a significant net cash position, highly unusual for a toll road asset, which typically has a large debt capacity. Elacto's claim on Atiki Odos' net cash balance alone was more than 100 million euros. And importantly, Atiki Odos did not guarantee the debt obligations of other group companies. By simply adding up Elacto's valuable assets, marking their other assets at zero, and subtracting holding company debt, we estimated that Elacto's stock was trading at a large discount to its intrinsic value. So what happened then? Well, as it turned out, the controlling shareholders of Elacto were not willing to exit its money-losing businesses. In 2012 and 2013, as Elacto continued to burn cash on civil works and other projects, partly in exchange for IOUs from the cash-strapped Greek government, it began selling down its Eldorado stock and reinvesting in its construction and other businesses. The company's capital allocation decisions caused us concern and caused us to sell out of our stock. So with hindsight, we should have foreseen that Elacta would actually continue working with the Greek government, even though they were not paid, and even without legal obligation to do so. After all, Elacta had accumulated its major assets, including its concession assets, etc., because of its good relationship with various Greek governments. Stopping work on public civil works projects for non-payment would have caused major egg-on phase for the government, and consequential job losses in an already battered economy. So our experience with Elacto was a valuable lesson about investing with companies operating in a thick business culture, where a tapestry of unwritten social contracts may significantly affect businesses and investment outcomes. Now, we actually made several other quite profitable investments in Greece that more than made up for our mistake with Elacto, but it's our experience with Elacto that takes up extra room in our memory bank. So that is an interesting case where the numbers are one thing and the culture surrounding the investment are a complete other. And you mentioned this concept of a thick business culture that seems to be surrounding this particular case. Can you tell us a little bit more about these things? Good question. Many older cultures, especially in Asian Europe, are thick cultures. A great elucidation of this comes from William Mishler and Detlef Polak, who describe thick culture as follows. First, thick culture is essential. Culture becomes nearly synonymous with the spirit or genius of a people. Thick culture is fundamental with meanings deeply embedded in a society's institutions. Thick culture is exogenous. It precedes and shapes institutions and behavior. Thick culture is holistic. It is indivisible at group level and undefinable at the individual level. Thick culture is externally bounded and internally homogenous. It separates we from they. And thick culture is durable. It changes very slowly, if at all, over decades or generations. So that's thick culture. Now, American culture, on the other hand, is thin. Mishler and Polak describe thin culture as follows. 
So thing culture is empirical. It may or may not matter. Thing culture is constructivist. It is conditioned by recent experience and is rationally based. Thing culture is endogenous. Institutions and behavior shape it as much as it shapes them. Thing culture is individualist. It consists of an aggregate of individual attitudes and beliefs. Groups do not exist except as accumulations of individuals. Thin culture is relatively unbounded and diverse. That is, culture refers to the central tendency of a group's attitudes and beliefs and can admit variations within a group. Thin culture is heterogeneous and ambivalent, such that competitive values can coexist in belief systems. And thin culture is dynamic and pliable in response to social, economic, and political change. So what I would say is true, like as an Italian, I definitely see myself in the thick bucket. Where would you put American investment behavior? We would say that American culture of shareholder capitalism is thin, and we'd say it's also instrumental. So it evolved into what it is because it works to apportion risk and reward and to allocate resources. So bridging the gap between thick and thin cultures may not be easy. As with the case of Elakdor, capital allocation decisions that we here in the States think irrational when viewed through our lens may seem perfectly reasonable, even necessary, when viewed through the lens of a thicker business culture. Likewise, our view of ownership as primarily an economic and legal concept, where ownership consists of a bundle of rights and claims, is sometimes at odds with those of an Asian or European firm's thicker conception of ownership, which contains more social and historical meaning. So for example, it may not be obvious to the management teams operating in a thick culture that an investor who bought 2% of a stock actually owns 2% of the firm, especially when that 2% stake was acquired only recently and might be disposed of soon. This is so interesting, Sutran. Do you have other examples of thick culture behaviors that may be completely understandable within the value frame of who's in it, but for us investors may be completely irrational? I mean, thick culture influences business decisions in all sorts of ways. In many Asian businesses, family members, not professional managers, still sit atop the chain of command, often because family members are more commonly admitted into inner circles of trust. This is true even for small businesses. So I'll use a case study close to home. One of my relatives, let's call him Uncle Tom, owns and runs a small noodle factory in Malaysia. His son, let's call him Harry, has been groomed for many years to take over the business. But Uncle Tom is concerned that Harry is not ready to run the company. So some years ago, Uncle Tom identified a capable businesswoman, let's call her Sally, to marry Harry so that Sally could help Harry manage the company once Uncle Tom retired. Unfortunately, Harry had no interest in marrying Sally creating tensions with his father. So naturally, I asked, why doesn't the company simply hire Sally to run the business as CEO? To which Uncle Tom replied, but then she wouldn't be family. Okay, so that's a situation where the Harry meets Sally (laughs) movie goes in a completely different direction. Not their real names. (laughs) Indeed. When you look at investments and reflect on your core strength and other aspects of your business, what do you think are your blind spots? I think that my biggest blank spot has been not sufficiently valuing the growth runway of some of our businesses. We have sometimes exited our investments too soon, causing us to leave money on the table. 
We believe that too many of our exited investments have gone on to compound at high IRRs after we sold them. My second blank spot is a tendency to let perfection be the enemy of the good. We have sometimes been slow to make adjustments to our investment program because, frankly, our instinct is to think through all the implications of any changes for unintended second-order consequences to make sure that we get the adjustments just right. For example, the creation of a capital drawdown structure has allowed us to invest better as contrarian, opportunistic, long-term value investors by enabling us to keep our powder dry in times of irrational exuberance and play offense in times of market dislocation. However, it took us a while to work out the details of the drawdown structure. With hindsight, sucking my thumb on this decision was just a mistake. We should have been more willing to innovate sooner, even if some of the things we tried out are perceived to be uncommon or unconventional. So we spoke about entering a business and the criteria to do so. Now, I'd love for you to think about the exiting of a business, of an investment. How do you think about selling and what is your relationship with the businesses you own? When we initiate an investment, we typically signal to the management team that we intend to be long-term shareholders and partners. This is especially important because we tend to become shareholders during times of stress for the company as a result of macroeconomic or industry-specific or company-specific issues. So we generally try to encourage the management team not to focus on the short-term price movements or play to the public market's Greek chorus, and instead to focus on doing the right things for the company long-term. Over the past decade, we have met with a large number of CEOs, managers, and entrepreneurs globally. Every once in a while, we have had the good fortune to encounter an outstanding business leader with uncommon vision, drive, skills, and character at a time of flux for his or her company, giving us an opportunity to make a difference by providing support to him or her. Every time we've done this, a support has been rewarded in spades. I won't name names, but they know who they are. Now, there are three circumstances when we exit an investment. First, when we've made an investing mistake. Second, when Mr. Market makes us an offer we cannot refuse for the asset. Third, when there are other more compelling investments we want to make and we have to raise cash. Let's leave the investment technicalities for one second. If you could have a conversation with your past self, which advice would you give? <laughs> well, I would tell my younger self that the days are long, but the years are short. You've been blessed with good health, family and friends, the opportunity to do what you love as a professional calling. So don't sweat the small stuff. Remember to enjoy the journey and the relationships you have and pay it forward. Of course, this is easier said than done. Many days, I still sweat the small stuff. And many days, I'm still overly absorbed with the problems that I deal with, which somehow seem to magically assume an outside significance while I'm encountering them. I would agree with that. We would all agree with that. <laughs> if you were to lift your head one second and look around you, what are the most notable trends that you see in the industry today? A question we have been getting more of recently is, does value investing still work? Our short answer is yes, but it has become more challenging. So first, value investors are perceived to be more history-focused rather than future-focused. Now, in recent times, this approach has been questioned in the face of rapid technological advances, since the future of so many industries may look different from the past. We believe that in reality, the case is more nuanced. 
successful value investing has to be future-focused. The intrinsic value of any business is the net present value of its future, not past cash flows. However, perhaps counterintuitively, peering into the future often requires that we reach even further into the past. For example, to better understand the power of the internet, it's helpful to study how the advent of mass communications, the telegraph, the telephone, the television, changed how consumers and other economic actors behaved. Good investors must be both historians and futurists. Second, ultra-loose monetary policy has upended the trade-off-based economic thinking favored by value investors. For example, imagine two companies, Company X and Company Y. Company X has a better management team, but the two businesses are otherwise similar. Company X trades at a significantly higher valuation than Company Y. Value investors ask, given the valuation differential, is Company X a better investment or Company Y? But when capital is not scarce, such trade-offs are unnecessary. Investors can pay anything for exactly the company that they want. Why settle for company Y when one could buy company X, price differences notwithstanding? Now, third, value investors tend to focus more on underwriting downside scenarios than upside scenarios. In today's environment, investors skilled at underwriting and pricing left-tail risks are often priced out of the market because central banks wielding monetary policy like a blunt knife appear to be intent on cutting off the left-tail scenarios of many businesses. Lastly, long-term value investing has been rendered more challenging because investors are simultaneously becoming more patient about receiving operating cash flows from their investments and because no such cash flow are forthcoming, more impatient about living off mark-to-market returns instead. If there are no mark-to-market returns in any given year, the spending ability of investors in such year is immediately compromised. The Nash equilibrium of all of this is an investment community that relies on positive changes in near-term expectations about the future prospects of businesses owned to fund current spending requirements. Perhaps paradoxically, investment horizons shorten, not lengthen as a result. Well, this is the opposite of how value investors tend to invest. Value investors tend to demand cash flow from their businesses. With such cash flow secured, they're patient about mark-to-market returns because they believe that intrinsic value exerts itself in the long run. Looking into the next decade, we believe that some of these headwinds are likely to reverse. In particular, mind-bending market distortions caused by ultra-loose and aggressively interventionist monetary policy is unlikely to last. We reckon that other trends are more likely to persist. The moats around businesses are getting narrower and business clock speeds are getting shorter. Disruptive businesses are themselves getting disrupted or are actively disrupting themselves, sometimes within the first decade of their existence. The gale of creative destruction is quickly becoming a hurricane. So this is interesting. How do you respond to all this? So we have to become even more fundamental in our analysis of business structures. Reasoning from first principles about how each business would fare in a dynamically changing technological and competitive landscape. We believe that time arbitrage, backed by long-duration capital, 
will become an even more important competitive advantage. In a world with high degrees of technological innovation and creative destruction, investment horizons are likely to keep shrinking. In such a world, honing our ability to identify businesses with truly persistent structural barriers to entry, as opposed to temporary sources of competitive advantage, will become even more vital. There's a lot of irrationality, exuberance, loose monetary policies and distortions that we have been just talking about. If you were to express a wish about our industry, what would that be? I answer this question with some ambivalence. On the one hand, I wish that investment professionals and company executives would think, invest, and manage businesses with longer time horizons measured in decades, not days, weeks, months, quarters, or even a few years. After all, many ultimate capital owners are investing to benefit future generations, not just the current one. As John Lennon might say, were he a long-term value investor, imagine a world where publicly traded securities only change hands once a year. Imagine a world where investors worked out how much they're willing to pay for a stock without first looking at its market price. Imagine a world where, absent malfeasance, CEOs had at least half a decade to put their own stamps on businesses. I think our industry will look quite different. On the other hand, if such a world came to be, the potential for long-term investors to generate outsized returns from time arbitrage would be greatly reduced. This would not help an investment partnership like ours. What's different about the investment environment as you experience it today versus, for example, when you started your career? So back when I was starting out in my career, economic thinking or scarcity-based thinking was still widely accepted. In economics classes around the world, students were still taught that economics is ultimately the study of scarcity and its implications. A market mechanism serves to help society allocate scarce resources in light of competing demands. Scarcity-based investors ask, given the limited supply of particular goods, services, or assets, and given the demand for such goods, services, or assets, at what price does the market clear for each? These days, it has become fashionable to question the validity of economic mental models. At the micro level, some folks question, well, why do profits matter for a particular business? as a mechanism for determining whether the business should exist? Why do profits matter for the pricing of assets and hence the allocation of financial resources? At the macro level, some folks question, why does supply of demand of money matter for determining the price of money, that is, exchange rates? Likewise, why does supply and demand of debt matter for determining the price of debt, that is, interest rates? In the field of investing, when capital is not scarce, Economic trade-offs are unnecessary. So as we've already discussed, investors can pay anything for exactly the asset that they want. The quality of the asset, however defined, becomes a more important criterion for whether the investor should buy it than the value in the investment. That is the gap between the price paid for the investment relative to the net present value of the expected cash flows of the asset. In the hands of a non-scarcity-driven investor, quality becomes a narrative-driven concept, divorced from the calibration of cash flows. What are you working on these days, Suchuan? When our industry evolves in a particular direction, as we've discussed, our instinct is often to go the other. So these That's days, why you call yourself contrarian, I guess? 
Right. So these days, we're working on developing more mental models, better mental models for evaluating and quantitatively calibrating the structural barriers to entry or modes of the businesses we study. If we're going to have this conversation in five years, where are we going to find you? I'll hopefully still be interested to do the same thing, but with even more gray hair. Investing is a stressful business. How do you get rid of it? Not the business, but the stress, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) By sitting in my favorite spot by the Mayanus River with a good book. I don't think this quite gets rid of my stress, but it does help manage it. And this is as it should be. The bracing presence of stress suggests that we are still motivated by goals yet unachieved. I love what you just said. It makes me more at ease with the levels of stress that we have. What's the most interesting thing you've read on your favorite spot? Well, it's hard to pick one, so I'll name three. Who We Are and How We Got Here by David Reich, The Master Algorithm by Pedro Domingos, and The Culture Map by Erin Meyer. And what are you reading now on the river? What Tech Calls Thinking by Adrian Dobb. Sutren, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thanks so much for participating. Look forward to speaking again in five years. Thank you for having me, Andrea. And thanks for these phenomenal questions. It was great to have you with us. Feel free to subscribe and join us next time for more conversations with successful investors. As a reminder, Successful Investors by Novus reflects the opinions and views of the speakers alone and is provided for informational purposes only, without representation as to accuracy or completeness. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell securities or make investments, nor is it intended to promote or endorse any specific investment strategy or product. For more information about this podcast, check out novus.com slash podcast.